The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. It's good to be together as we now look at God's Word, and we're glad you're here together, especially if you're watching online. We do invite you to join us in person, especially if you're here in the Twin Cities. This morning is the first Sunday of Advent, the four weeks prior to Christmas, where we remember and celebrate the birth of Jesus, as we've already done in song. And now we go to God's Word. So would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, we ask that you would incline our hearts to you and to your word now so that we would see wondrous things from this book and that you would speak to us through it. Open our eyes to see you. Unite our hearts to fear your name and then satisfy us with your steadfast love. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever heard the phrase, there are no atheists in foxholes. There are no atheists in foxholes. I asked my children this morning, do you know what a foxhole is? And they said, we don't. And so let let me explain what a foxhole is. During a war or a battle, soldiers would dig a hole. Sometimes it would be a defensive position. Sometimes it would be an offensive position, but they would hide in that foxhole while the war or the battle was raging, and then they could take action from that hole. And the phrase, there are no atheists in foxholes, suggests that in moments of extreme stress or fear, everyone looks to a higher power. Everyone looks to a divine power. And and that's not always true, but it it sort of highlights a, a general truth that in the midst of fearsome and terrifying situations, what we trust ultimately emerges. Fear has a way of revealing what we trust, what we think about or what we look to in situations that are dire. The first thing we look to or the things we call out to reveal what it is that we trust. Fear or crisis or a dire situation reveals where our faith lies. And in our passage of this morning, Paralyzing fear is the context in which we get one of the most well-known and beloved passages about the birth of Jesus. Isaiah 7, 14. This foretells the birth of Jesus, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, but the broader context of this verse is often unfamiliar for many of us. And what I hope to do this morning is by looking and studying this passage in its original context, that we would better appreciate the significance of this good news as it breaks into our world. And the reason for this is today we live in a world where fear is commoditized and capitalized upon at every turn. If it bleeds, it leads is still true. If you watch the news, you'll be bombarded with reports of the latest variant of COVID coming out of South Africa or the backed up supply chain or reports of hyperinflation or outbursts of violence across the U.S. And so if you just watch the news, your experience, you might think this Christmas, 
Uh, I'm just going to be getting my third or fourth or fifth booster shot with no presence because of the supply chain, standing in line at Aldi waiting for bread because of hyperinflation, and I'm getting carjacked every time I'm in downtown Minneapolis. And that's just not true. But, but the news media can capitalize upon our fears. People can use fear to sell you things like, did you know that wives, you know, you might outlive your husband by 10 or 15 years, so make sure he has a health insurance policy, a, a real good one. Or, or, you know, three out of four homes are getting robbed this Christmas, so you should get one of those security systems with the camera and everything else. What then is the antidote to all this fear and fear-mongering that we face in our world? What's the antidote to the fear that, that is being capitalized upon and that just wells up from within our own hearts? Well, the answer of our passage this morning is that in the midst of fear, we can trust God because God is with us. God is with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. This is perhaps one of the simplest truths to understand conceptually and one of the most difficult truths to actually put into practice. That in the moment you're on the hospital bed, that you remember, God is with me. It's one thing to know it up here. It's another to experience the fullness of this truth that God is with us in the midst of the storm. It's a simple truth that three and four-year-olds can know, and yet it's a difficult truth that 60 and 70 and 80-year-olds can continue to wrestle with, to try to fully grasp and understand. Did you know that in our nurseries, one of the first verses that our small young children learn is Psalm 56, 3. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. My guess is many of our children know that verse here this morning. We even give out little uh, magnets. You can't read it, but that has the verse on it. And I have probably half a dozen of these scattered around my house. It's a simple truth with profound implications. And so my aim this morning is to realign and reorient our hearts to look with faith and unwavering trust in Jesus. So my plan this morning is to look at the broader context of Isaiah 7, 14, and then to look at Matthew and how he uses and cites this verse, and then to help us apply this truth today. And before we jump in, let me answer one more question at the outset. You might be wondering why we're looking at Isaiah for Advent instead of one of the Gospels. Well, Isaiah provides some of those beautiful and significant themes and imagery about the birth of the Messiah. You just heard Kurt pray one of those verses, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That shows up nowhere else but in Isaiah. And so some of the most profound images we get about Jesus come in the book of Isaiah. The other is that as we study Isaiah, it will help us appreciate the unity of the scriptures. 
It's written by human authors through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but directed by the divine author. Isaiah was written about five to seven hundred years prior to the birth of Jesus. And when we see the prophecies and then we see the fulfillment, what should happen for us is that our appreciation should rise and our trust in Jesus would deepen to see the divine author of redemptive history. So now, let's look at Isaiah. Isaiah is not necessarily a well-known book, so let me just give an overview. Isaiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. And so the kingdom had already split. You had Israel in the north and then Judah in the south. And Isaiah preaches a message of judgment and hope. And Israel and Judah had rebelled against God, and the consequences of that would be that God would bring nations such as Assyria and Babylon— to bring them into exile. And so these, this section comes before the exile. And, and yet throughout the book of Isaiah, there's this glimmer of hope. There's this silver lining that takes place, that there will be this Davidic king that will establish his kingdom. There's this hope throughout the book of Isaiah. Now, the immediate context of our passage here in Isaiah is a bit confusing. So you can think of it like an episode of Tom and Jerry a little bit. So there is a mouse, two rats, and a cat. So Judah is the mouse, and it's being attacked by Israel and Syria. Those are the two rats. And so he goes to the cat for help, which is Assyria. And what ends up happening is the cat disposes of the rats, but then ultimately eats the mouse also for dessert. So that's a little bit of what we're going to see. You didn't know Tom and Jerry showed up in Isaiah. Okay, look, look with me at verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 7, verses 1 and 2. It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. So this is the mouse. Rezin and the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. So these are the two rats. You get Syria and you get Jerusalem or Israel but yet could not mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So we get these two nations coming up to Judah, and and how does Ahaz react? He's gripped by fear. It says the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook. This is a very Old Testament poetic way of saying they could wet their pants. They're so fearful. They're going to be destroyed. These two nations that are more powerful than are coming to attack them. But then God sends Isaiah to speak to Ahaz. Look at verse 4 of chapter 7, and he says, say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. So essentially, don't fear these two nations. I've got this. I'm going to protect you. He goes on to say, look at verses 7 to 9. It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the heads of for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within sixty-five years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. 
Essentially, what God is saying through Isaiah to King Ahaz is, I'm going to destroy these two nations. Before 65 years is up, these two nations will be completely shattered. And so what happens next is that God, through the prophet Isaiah, tells King Ahaz to ask for a sign. Look at verse 10. The Lord spoke to Ahaz, verse 11, ask for a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Let me prove that I'm trustworthy by asking for any sign that you want to show that these two nations that are coming up against you that you're so fearful of will be destroyed. And King Ahaz says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to ask for a sign. See that in verse 12? I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, that actually sounds like he's full of faith. I'm not going to put God to the test. But we know that this is actually faux humility. It's pseudo-spirituality because he refuses to ask for a sign. It's not humility when God commands you to do something and you refuse to do it. And to prove this, I think we need to turn to 2 Kings 16. And it'll show why this is faux humility or faux spirituality. He's not being humble, saying, I'm not going to test God. He's actually hardening his heart and full of unbelief. Go to 2 Kings 16. 2 Kings 16. This is all about the reign of Ahaz. And if you look at verse 5, you'll see. Rezin, the king of Syria, Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. So this is the same exact thing that's taking place. And at the time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria and drove the men from Judah from Elath, and the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. Verse 7 now, 2 Kings 16, 7. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And then verse 8, Ahaz also took silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. So that is what's happening. In the midst of a fearsome situation, a terrifying situation, King Ahaz, instead of looking to the God of his fathers, instead of looking to Yahweh, he takes the gold and silver from the Lord's house, sends it as a gift to Assyria to say, help me. He turns to the cat instead of trusting in the Lord, his God. Let me just say a brief word about the difference between trusting God and testing God, and then we'll move on. King Ahaz said he wouldn't test God, but he was in fact failing to trust God in this situation. What's the difference? Well, Satan attempted to put God to the test. We read about that in Matthew 4, and it can sometimes, we can sometimes do that as well. And it goes a little bit like this. God, I'll only follow you or I'll make a deal with you. If you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. If you save my children, if you deliver me from this financial disaster, if you get me out of this hospital room, then I'll follow you. And that's testing God, and it's wicked, and it's evil. But trusting God is different. Trusting God is saying, God, I see what you have said in your word. I see the promises that you've made to your people. And so I'm trusting you and I'm going to hold to what you have said and what you have written. And I'm going to believe that you will cause it to come to pass. 
So when you say, Lord, fear not, do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I'm holding on to that truth and trusting that you're going to come through. Or that you said that if we get brought before rulers and councils, that we don't need to think about what we're going to say in that moment, but trust that the Holy Spirit will give us words in that particular moment. And so I'm trusting you, God, in this challenging situation when someone's questioning my faith at work, that you're going to give me words to speak that will be fruitful and good. Or, Father, you said that you send out your word like rain that falls on the ground, and it does not return void. And so I'm trusting you as I share the good news with a neighbor or with a coworker or with a friend or a family member that you'll use it to till the soil and plant seeds that will bear fruit. Trusting God is going to his promises and trusting him to follow through and to be faithful. Okay, we're coming back to our passage now. Ahaz does not trust God, but instead he looks to a political alliance to deliver him. Look with me at verse 13. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? So Isaiah says, You made a mistake. You're trusting in Assyria rather than trusting in Yahweh. And now he gives him verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. God unilaterally gives him a sign, and he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, it's not immediately clear how that promise addresses this particular situation because Judah is being attacked by two other countries, Israel and Syria, And God says, I'm going to destroy those two nations, but I'm also going to judge you with Assyria, and you're going to be destroyed by Assyria. Yet God gives a sign that a child would be born that would signify the destruction of their enemies. And the truth that begins to emerge in this is that God will preserve his people through judgment, despite the ferocity of their enemies. David's line the, the, king, the Davidic king would be preserved as a remnant throughout all time so that the Messiah would be able to come. So, how do we understand this section? Understanding Isaiah seven fourteen is probably one of the most complex and complicated texts in Isaiah. There's entire books written on how to understand this prophecy. And is there really a sign in Ahaz's day? And then how does it translate to become applied to Jesus? So I'm going to give four of the main views of how some understand this sign to operate in Isaiah's day. The first is some think this Emmanuel figure is a faithful Davidic king, someone like Hezekiah that would come after Ahaz, but it's likely that Hezekiah's already been born up to this point. Others think it's an unnamed child that would grow up during this time when Israel and Syria are destroyed. And you can kind of see that this child is going to eat curds and honey. And so that's the type of food that a nomad would eat because the land is now desolate. You see that in verse 15. Others believe it's not a sign to Ahaz. It's only pointing forward all the way to Jesus. And so there is no temporal sign for Ahaz. 
And yet it seems like there is some sort of sign for Ahaz saying, before this child grows up and is of a certain age, you're going to see these two kingdoms destroyed. And so what is it? The, The fourth option is that it could be referring to actually Isaiah's son in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. And I think that's actually the, the answer. That Isaiah 7, 14 is an example of a passage with dual fulfillment. It's ultimately completely fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus, but it's also temporarily fulfilled in Isaiah's son. So look with me at chapter 8. And verses 3 and 4 of chapter 8. So now we're going to jump into the weeds and then we're going to emerge from the weeds and hopefully it all come together. So chapter 8, verse 3. And I went to the prophetess. So this is Isaiah going to his wife. She's called the prophetess. And she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. If you want a good, strong biblical name, you could try that one. Maher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the Lord knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. And so there is a son that Isaiah is going to have. It's actually his second son. And this child will grow up. And before he's able to cry out, my father or my mother, you'll see that Assyria will have demolished the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria. These two nations will be destroyed. And then we can see later, if you scroll down to verse 8, it will sweep on to Judah. So Assyria, as it attacks those two nations, disposes the rats, it's going to actually eat the mouse for dessert. So it sweep on to Judah, overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. And then scroll down to verse 10. Take counsel together, for it will come to nothing. Speak a word. It will not stand, for God is with us. The picture here is that Isaiah will have a son, and before this son reaches a certain age, the judgment will fall upon Israel and Syria, and even Assyria will have judged Judah. That doesn't sound like good news. This sign is a sign of judgment. This child will signify, yes, God is with his people through judgment and ultimately through salvation. But this sign is a sign of judgment, that God is sending a son that will signify the destruction of, of both these nations and the nation of Judah because of King Ahaz's disobedience. And so in the midst of this, though, that the silver lining or the glimmer of hope in the midst of all of these prophecies of judgment is that God is indeed going to be with his people. Even through judgment, even through exile, God will preserve a remnant that will ultimately manifest in the person and work of Jesus. So the main point of Emmanuel in the context of Isaiah is that God is with his people even in the midst of judgment. God will not abandon his people through trials and challenges and sorrows and hardships. And then when we come to the New Testament, 
when Emmanuel, God with us, finally shows up in the person and work of Jesus? Does he come to bring judgment? No. He comes to bring everlasting life, salvation. Jesus, this Jesus, would come to take away the sins of the world. This morning, knowing that God is with his people even through the darkest of days should be a good reminder for us this morning. Remember at the end of 2020, we all said, 2021 is going to be a great year. It's where all the polarization is going to go away. We'll, we'll look at COVID in the rear view mirror and life will just get back to normal. Didn't happen. Perhaps on a personal level, this has been a difficult year. Perhaps you're more estranged from family, more divided than ever, more polarized. Isaiah 7:14 reminds us that God promises to be with his people. And it comes not just in the good times, not just when you're flying high, but in the midst of global, worldwide disaster, God is with us. God is with his people. Whatever calamity or hardship you might be facing, whether external to you or within your own heart and mind, God has said, I will be with you. Jesus has come into the world as Emmanuel, God with us. Psalm thirty-four, eighteen says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And so if there's any who are brokenhearted and crushed in spirit here this morning, be reminded that God is with us and he brings his grace and mercy and kindness and he is with his people through the hardships of life. Now, what I want to do is turn to Matthew chapter 1 and see how Matthew's gospel cites this verse. So Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to read verse 20 to 23. He says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the fulfillment of what Isaiah had spoken is completely fulfilled in the virgin birth of Jesus that Jesus was indeed born of a virgin, that he is Emmanuel, God with us, and now the Old Testament finds its complete fulfillment. Now, we might wonder, well, Maher, Halal, Hashbaz wasn't born of a virgin, and yet Jesus is, and how does that prophecy work? Well, the Hebrew word for virgin back in Isaiah seven fourteen is Alma, which could mean virgin, but it could also mean young woman of marriageable age. But when the Septuagint, which we call the LXX, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, translated that word virgin, Alma, it used the word Parthenos, 
which means virgin, which can only narrowly mean virgin. And this happened long before the birth of Jesus. So the virgin birth has been established already by Judaism as a sign of a coming Messiah. And so the plain and straightforward reading of Matthew and Luke's gospel is that Mary was indeed a virgin who was with child. Joseph was not the father, and it was the Holy Spirit that had come upon her. And this is why the angel comes to Joseph to make it crystal clear. Joseph was no one's fool. He saw that Mary was pregnant and he said, I'm going to quietly divorce her because I know how babies are made and and I wasn't involved. And, and, And so when he intends to divorce her, it requires the angel to come to Joseph to say, don't be afraid. Don't fear to take Mary as your wife. And so, This is one of those key doctrines because there's many who would deny the virgin birth. But if Jesus had a human father, then we don't have a savior. The significance of the incarnation is that God himself finally came down in sinful human flesh, sinless human flesh, to become our savior and to become our ransom. This is why Christmas is such a big deal. The God of the universe, the one we have sung of this morning, the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That name, Jesus, has come down in the flesh to dwell with and among his people. This is an earth-shattering truth and reality that god has come down to dwell with us prophesied 700 years earlier and now he's come this is why jesus is given the name emmanuel god come down in the flesh to be with us i imagine if you're just visiting church, maybe you're an unbeliever, maybe you're you're just trying to figure out this Christianity thing. This sounds outrageous. These people believe in a virgin birth, and, and yes, we do. It is a miracle. It is one of many miracles that Jesus performed, and this one signifies that he is indeed the Son of God, that he would embody the name Emmanuel. God come down so that we would once again be able to walk side by side with the God of the universe, just like in Eden once again. And so we want to invite you in to see the truth claims of Jesus in his word so that you would be able to decide for yourself. Don't dismiss it without having first looked at the evidence of Jesus. Now, what significance does this truth, Emmanuel, God with us, have for us today? How might these truths transform our minds and hearts and build up our faith? I think there's a number of applications, but let me just name a few. First, we see that God keeps his word. Promises are kept. Jesus Christ fulfills the Old Testament prophecies, and it proves the reliability and the truthfulness of God's word. Syria, Assyria, and Babylon have all been destroyed. 
God did indeed raise up a Davidic king to rule and reign in the person of Jesus. God keeps his promises. And so are any of us wavering in our faith this morning? Are any of us feeling uh, unmoored and and, and discombobulated and, and, and frustrated? You can go to God's word and every single one of his promises found in this book are true. And they find their answer in the person and work of Jesus. They are yes and amen. And so you can trust in the Lord our God. The second thing we see is that Jesus is truly the Son of God and the Savior. The virgin birth reveals the significance of this child over all others. John the Baptist was a pretty unusual birth. Here's this extreme geriatric pregnancy with Elizabeth. And yet, it's unlike the birth of Jesus. It's unrivaled and unrepeatable. There will be no other birth like his. And Matthew cites Isaiah seven fourteen, inspired by the Holy Spirit, which also inspired Isaiah's prophecy to prove to us once and for all that this indeed is the Son of God. So this Christmas, as we gather together, you come not just for the feel-good, not just for the decorations, not just for the presents. We come and we gather because of what Jesus himself has done. God himself has come into the world to save his people from their sins. Third, God is trustworthy. God came down, born of a woman, born fully God and fully man, to offer his life as a ransom. So in the midst of joys and sorrows and everything in between, God is with us. In the midst of stress and anxiety and fear, God is with us. If you're celebrating your first Thanksgiving and first Christmas, having lost a loved one, God is with you. In disappointment and anger and frustration, God is with us. In strained relationships with extended family, feelings of abandonment or isolation, God tells us he has come to be with us. In financial difficulties, God is with us. In strained marriages and difficult children, aging parents, aging bodies, God has said, I have come to be with you as Emmanuel. God is with us through the judgment and now in salvation. Jesus as God with us, not only is with us in the here and now, not only does his presence transform everything, we know that we can go through the storm because Jesus is in the boat with us, but God, through Jesus, is now bringing us to glory. Revelation 21.3 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God will dwell with us and be our God forever. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, as we enter into this Christmas season, may we lift our eyes and turn them upon Jesus our glory, and our prize, our Savior who is ever true. Let's pray.
Father, deepen the wellspring of trust that we have in Jesus this morning so that we would see you in all of your splendor and glory and that you would transform our hearts so that we would trust you more and more. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.